0: good to see you today. Hope you're doing well. We're in verse 12 of, uh, of chapter 1 of the book of Philippians. And if you, if you remember, we spent really almost two full sessions on this rather magnificent prayer of the Apostle Paul in verses 8 through 11. But we completed that last week. In verse 12, then, in a sense, the Apostle Paul gets into—if you're following in your in your notes, it's uh, page uh, six, I believe—but he gets into the main point of his letter, uh, if you will, the main reason for his letter. I want to remind you of something. Um, he's going to refer in verse 12 to my circumstance. I want to remind you—he's in prison. Philippians is one of the prison epistles. There are four of those. It's one of the prison epistles of Paul. And so when he talks about his circumstances, he means his being in prison. And uh, you have to go to the book of Acts, those last uh, chapters, which tell us how he got in prison, he's in Rome, and why he's there, and so on. But he says something as we read this, it's a surprise. Paul is incredibly positive about this experience. Now, I don't maybe you guys have a different view of things than I do, but if I were in prison and I were in prison for preaching the gospel, I'm not sure I would be exalting over that and praising God over that. That's what Paul does. And so what you see and I I've thought many times, how do you approach something like this? Why, Why would a man like Paul speak so positively? about being in prison. What does that tell us about this man's character, this man's outlook, this man's perspective? Talk to me about that. He has more of an eternal perspective, certainly. Ah. We've talked about that with a, a number of mm-hmm. situations through the different books. That's excellent, Joe. He has an eternal perspective. He he's, He sees the eternal value and the eternal dimension of things in life. Good, that's excellent. Anything else you can say about him? He's able with the help of the Spirit to see things from a supernatural perspective and even take captive his emotions with that regard, how he feels about things. Yeah, Yeah. it affects his emotions, affects his perspective about things and how he responds to things like this emotionally. Anything else? What kind of a man is he if he can see something positive in this? What what, um, what terms, what traits would you use if we were, and that's not what this is going to be, but if we would make a list up here, what would be some of the character traits or qualities of Paul's life you'd want to put on a list up here? Optimistic. Alright. Why is he optimistic? Because of his Okay, all right, good. What else? Loyal. Loyal to particularly. Loyal to whom? Oh, to God. To God. Okay, good. Deep seated loyalty. Anything else? I think he was always others, you know, looking for others than himself. He wasn't selfish to himself. He isn't. He isn't normally, at least, he's very self-centered. Yeah. He's very other-centered. He's right. always thinking about how others will be impacted by whatever he's doing and however he is expressing himself or, 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 or whatever the circumstances might be. Good. Anything else? Dignify. Dignify. Okay. Certainly. How about, I'm, I'm surprised nobody said this, it's a guy who's, who's a guy of great faith. A guy of great trust. Tr- I mean, he's a man of faith, faith in God that, ultimately, because of the eternal perspective, because of optimism and all the things that we've said, his, his faith and his trust in God is so implicit. It's just implicit trust in God. Everything. And that stems... Now, if I can go down the bunny trail just a little bit further, a little bit farther. It stems from his understanding of who God is. If God is sovereign, and God's providence is real, and God has a plan and purpose that he's working, and I, meaning Paul, am a part of that purpose and plan, my goodness, then I can trust him implicitly. Very few times do you see, in Paul's writings at least, doubt. If you really believe that God is sovereign, his providence is real, that he is in control, that he's accomplishing his purposes, working his plan, and we're a part of it, this is going to sound like a really loaded question, but is there anything such as a coincidence? The answer to that is no. Things don't just happen. Let me put it another way. If God is the subject, there's no such thing as random occurrences. My kids, particularly my daughter, you know, they're grown, married, and all that stuff now. But I can remember in their teen years they loved to use the word random. I mean, Joanna always like every third sentence had the word random in it. <laughs> that's just a random thing. Oh, Dad, Dad, that's random. And and the language of the early well, when would that have been the early 2000 when she was still a teenager, what I think random had a little bit of a different meaning than I define it. But it was just, it was really, the way these kids talk and think, that randomness, it's just random. When God's a subject, there isn't anything that's random. Um, Erwin McManus, who is a writer, I enjoy reading him. He's not a deep theologian. I just enjoy some of the stuff he writes occasionally. He speaks in one of his books of the divine appointments that God sets up for us. That if I, if I truly believe who God is, understand his attributes, understand what he's accomplishing uh, overall, I know his plan, and really, my life is going to be filled with divine appointments. And I had to learn that when I got into leadership. I had to learn that because, uh, I think I may have mentioned it once or twice, but my administrative assistant, she always scheduled appointments for me in 15-minute blocks. And somebody would ask for appointments, she says, how many 15-minute blocks do you want? Because he doesn't waste time. It's either for 15 minutes you should be able to say what you need to say to him and then he'll respond to it. Now it's the big one, I better need to, are you sure? Because if the 15 minutes is over and you have an account, what I'm saying is I would have my schedule tightly laid out for me each day. You know, honestly, I think in almost every day that I was president, that appointment schedule was always interrupted. And most of the times it was God interrupting it. And what I mean by that, something happened, some, you know, mini crisis or whatever, and you have to reschedule everything. And I, at first, I was extremely frustrated with that. But I had to set back and say, okay, Lord, if you truly are in control of things, my schedule is not your schedule. You will make your schedule clear to me. And whatever that is for the day, I will accept it. I wish I could tell you that then every single day with great bliss and cheerfulness in my heart, I always accepted all those interruptions. That's not true. But for Paul, being in prison wasn't an interruption from the eternal perspective of things. It wasn't just a random occurrence. Paul understood this. I'm here because this... Is something God's going to use to accomplish His greater purposes. And that's how He approaches it with these Philippians. It's an amazing section. Here's a man who knew God, trusted God implicitly about everything, and said, You know, I'm in jail, but a lot of neat things are happening. So I would just, it's just kind of amazing. So look at verse 12 and 13 with me. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ, or for the cause of Christ, has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. Verse 14, And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now if you look the way I've organized it in the notes there, The thesis of this paragraph is, it is a good thing that I'm in prison. This is a very positive thing that I'm in prison. Because things are happening that wouldn't have happened if I were not in prison. Wow. So if you look at the grammar of this is, Result number one is verse 13. Result number two is verse 14. So let's take a look at these. So the theme of the section is, it is a good thing from an eternal perspective. It's a good thing that I'm in prison. And notice the first one, the first result, verse verse 13. My imprisonment for the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard. Let me talk about that and talk who everyone else is. The Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard is the elite guard chosen personally by the Caesar. So this is the top. This is the top ring of the Roman military order. And these were the ones that personally guarded the Caesar and personally guarded the prisoners who were to appear before Caesar. And Paul's one of those. Because remember, and again, you have to go back to the book of Acts for this, but Paul ends up in Rome because he's in Caesarea. There are a lot of things happening, and they're about to execute him. And he says, I appeal to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. And one of the rights of Roman citizenship is you can take your case before Caesar personally. So he appealed to that. That's how he ended up in Rome. So he's here under the personal guard of Caesar's Praetorian Guard, his elite guard. Now, in that context, Paul would have been chained to those guards, and they changed guards every six hours. Paul is in prison for two years, so do the math. Every six hours, a new guard over to... You see what I'm saying now? You know, obviously, the same one may rotate, but if... I have a sermon I preach on this, so I get a little humor into the sermon, but I'll use it here. Just imagine, you remember the Pretoria jo- Joe and I are in the garden. I'm saying, Joe, I'm really not looking forward to today. I got Paul today. For six hours, I'm chained to this guy, and he's going to do nothing but talk to me about Jesus Christ, and I'm sick and tired of this guy. But some guy might say, well, he's going to say, but you know, actually, think about it a little differently because I put my faith in Christ because I was chained to Paul and it totally changed my life. Paul says there are many people in the Praetorian Guard who have come to faith. They've been exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the point? It never would have happened if I wasn't in prison. It would never have happened. And then he says, and this is a little more general and to everyone else, um, What does that mean? Who's the everyone else? Uh, We're not exactly sure, but because he is there in Rome appealing to Caesar and will appear before Caesar and these Praetorian guards, probably the reference to everyone else are other people in the imperial court. In the guards' family. Exactly, the guards' family, connections that they would have to others in the court, And so what's he saying? He's saying, because I'm in prison, there are many, many people in the top echelon of the Roman Empire that would never have heard the message if it were not for me being in prison. That's the eternal perspective. If God is sovereign and his providence is real, then I'm here for a purpose. I don't look at it that way. I'm moaning and wailing, I'm in the pity party, I'm wallowing in self-pity. I know you guys don't struggle with that, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about when things like that happen. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's one of the things that I think happens to our lives as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, is we start to get this perspective about things. God can use the circumstance I'm in. Let him use it. Let me get out of the way. Let him him use it. Let me see what he wants me to do with this. That's a great, what a great way to live. And that's what produces the optimism that you mentioned and the other aspects that you see manifested in Paul. But that's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary claim. it's, It's remarkable that you would hear, for you and me, read him saying this, but you say, oh boy, he's absolutely right. There will be people in heaven because they heard the gospel from Paul. And that, during that roughly two-year period, he was in, uh, in, uh, was in Rome. in was kind of like Paul came to believe that his own personal life was none of his business. Uh, you know, that he turned it all over to God. Yeah, yeah. His life and his will. Yeah. And he knew that wherever he was, it was because, you know, like you said, Mm-hmm. That's really hard to get to that place, you know. I mean, I like you, uh, moan and groan and mm-hmm. get into self pity and, mm-hmm. and why did this happen to me? And what did I do wrong? Or, you know, this is a payback of some kind. <laughs> you know, and sometimes we have to consider all those things. But I, I like that, I would actually like how you put it. You have some profound theological thoughts every now and then. That is, that is really good. World, uh, from somewhere else. oh okay <laughs> you wouldn't have had to tell me that i <laughs> but that you know in a in a real sense um when we put our faith in the Lord and we begin our walk with him, we are no longer our own we really aren't we we really we of course belong to him, but we really now serve him and serve others and uh that 's a uh, that's a perspective about life that's not a natural perspective. It's not natural to think that way. But I think as God continues to develop and transform us, we begin we begin to see things that way in the rest of our life. I think some of you have now walked with the Lord since 1972, but I can look over that period of time and I can see I've made a little bit of progress in that area of life to the glory of God. Because that's not the way i mean, I've told you, I think I've told you, my preference, if I could choose what I want to do, I'd be in a room every day just studying. That's what I really enjoy doing. But that's not, you know, I study, I, I work hard at that, but that's not what I do. That's just a means to an end. I, just, I love the means. I really do. I love the means. I just love to be doing the means. All, you know what I mean by means? <laughs> but that's not, that's not how... That's that's a very self-serving, self-elevating, and selfish position to have. And I've gotten over that. It it took me a long time. But he has a second, and this is is an even more intriguing position for us to try to get our arms around. And he sees it as a result. The second result is verse 14, that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So... Let's get the general point in a minute. We'll develop it more specifically. But there are a lot more people out there proclaiming the message. I think the inference is supposed to be because I'm in prison, others sense the urgency of getting the message out. So they're doing it. But then he talks about two groups of people. And I I have this in your notes and I have it up on the board because I want you to help me with this. This is going to be a class participation exercise. Some of you may want to leave because you're uncomfortable with that. But you, I'm just kidding. But I want to read this whole section through verse 18. <clears throat> and this is, as we read, as I read this, you just start to take note of this. He's talking about two groups of people. Both are preaching exactly the same message. And that's a good thing. But they have different motives. Let's see if we can figure out the motivation of these two. Some, to be sure, I'm starting in verse 15. Some, to be sure, preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, because they know that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So let's make sure we, first of all, understand the main point. Paul is thrilled that the gospel is being preached. But he, it's, he's not talking about two different messages. He's saying two groups of people, both preaching the message of the gospel. One group has good motives. The other group doesn't have good motives. But the message is still getting out. So certainly a conclusion we can reach is God blesses the message, not the motive. Does that? I want to go through the different motives that are listed here in a minute. And that's what I have up here. But let's stop. I want you to think about what I just said. God blesses the message, not the motive. Do you want to think about that a little bit? Do you want to talk about that? Do you understand what? I'm trying to summarize what he's saying here. What excites Paul is not the mixed motives, and actually quite nefarious motives in some kids. I shouldn't say nefarious. nefarious. means evil, bad. But, you know, the, the, the bad motives. That's not, Paul isn't focused. He's going to tell us that, but what he's focusing on is the message is getting out, and that's why I rejoice. So God blesses the message, not the motive. Another way of saying it, God blesses the message, despite the bad motive.: And we're not saying that He's blessing the messenger. No, we're not saying He's blessing the messenger. We're saying He's blessing the message. the word. And the only way we can read and and really understand this is they are both, let's divide them up into two groups, both groups are proclaiming the same gospel message. But one group is proclaiming the gospel message from very righteous, honorable motives. Another group is proclaiming the gospel message for not very good, honorable motives. Does that disturb you? Does that bother you? Do you want to talk about that? Or you just, it's so clear, yeah, absolutely, I got it. <clears throat> it's so often God blesses despite all of our motives and all of the shenanigans that might go on if the message is the right message. God blesses despite. Because quite frankly, dear people, dear men, Brothers, Very infrequently do we do things with pure motives. Does that shock you? I am constantly struggling with that. I mean, I really mean that. I constantly struggle with the motives. I, when I was in leadership, I'd be asked to give, uh, you know, a benedictory prayer after a big convention thing, or the Chamber of Commerce would ask me to come at one of their major annual meetings and give the invocation and so on. I'm praying in public. A prayer is talking to and conversation with God. But you know what I'm thinking about. If I pray a really good prayer that sounds really, really good, people are going to say, Jim, good prayer, that was great. And then I would think, and I represent Grace University, boy, that's good for Grace. And so sometimes I rather suspect my prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling. But probably not. But you know, the motive why do we do what we do? Don't think this is so foreign. This is what Paul is saying here. I think all of us can wrestle with this. Why do we do what we do? What are the motives? for what we really are doing. Even when we do things, you know, we sometimes characterize them as spiritual things, in church, you know, or working or serving in the church or whatever, These still can have very mixed motives. And the amazing thing about God's grace is He blesses despite our motive. Because we're all fallen people. Even once we put our faith in Christ, we still struggle. And until the Lord comes back and we get our brand new bodies, we're going to wrestle with those kind of things. Are, am I saying something that's utterly foreign to you or are you resonating with it? You understand? I mean this is so you know, even if you read this and you kind of get disconnected to it, don't get disconnected to it. When we look at these things, we can say, you know, some of that describes some of the reasons I do certain things. So, let's with that in mind, let's let's go through it now. And I want you I think we can get this done before we're we're, we're finished today. It starts in verse fifteen and it ends in verse eighteen. Let's first of all try to get a, a list or identify. Don't you love the word nefarious? That's the word nefarious. The nefarious motives. That's one of my favorite words. The evil motives. The bad. What are some of them? Can, can you help me? Would you say? I, I, oh, I question, a question first. Yep. Go ahead. Would you say it's worse not to say anything at all because it's. Maybe socially not acceptable to bring up the subject, for instance, of <coughs> uh, gay people and so on and so forth. To bring up a subject of a biblical viewpoint is it worse not to say something? <laughs> Thanks for asking a very non-controversial. This sounds like um, I mean, really, it's motive and non-motive. Yeah, I'm not punting here. It depends. (laughs) I think it depends on the situation that we're we're in, or whatever uh, the circumstance might be. Um, I think it's. Let, let me let me use another approach to this. In Luke chapter sixteen, Jesus uses a word that I found very helpful over the years. He talks about being shrewd. He says, "Often the sons of darkness are more shrewd than the children of light." Which you have to. Just, he's saying a bunch of things, and that's kind of the key punchline. And he says, "I want you to be shrewd as you present." the gospel, as you represent me, as you represent my values, my morals, and my ethical standards. So what does that mean? Well, shrewd means that you really are thinking, first of all, through the issue of who's your audience, and how are they going to respond to this, to shrewd in the actual words and language you choose to represent the values, morals, and ethical standards of God, And three, what's your anticipated response for doing something like that? It would be, I don't think shrewd. I think it would be actually characterized as foolish. For example, for me, if I was doing the invocation prayer at a major chamber of commerce event, and I pray for forgiveness for all the gay and lesbian wretches in the audience, that would not be a very good thing to say. That's not wise. That's not shrewd. That's foolish. And I'm using an extreme example, but... You know, if you're in a conversation with somebody and that issue of same-sex marriage or that lifestyle comes up, and say, well, what do you think on it? I've been in that many, many times. So I say, Well, first of all, foremost, I'm a Christian, and that should tell you something. But I do believe that God's uh, values and his morals and ethical standards are important. And I think God has spoken clearly on that. I'd be really happy to talk at length with you about that, but it's kind of difficult to just... Summarize it in one sentence. Yeah, I'd really like to hear about it. I said, are you sure? Because it's going to take several minutes. And I said, okay, let's look at God's ethical stand when it comes to human sexuality. Best place to start creation, isn't it? What does God say about human sexuality there? That's what I mean. You're, you're, you're reflecting that position, but you're not in attack mode. You're trying to pres- present a whole, and that takes some time to do that, a holistic perspective of what marriage and sexuality really is from the Creator's vantage point. And if people don't want to talk about it, I'm saying, you know, I'll I'll summarize it, but for the most part, for me to really accurately reflect what my conviction is, it's going to take a little bit of time. And I'm not attacking anybody. I'm trying to simply summarize what I see as God's perspective about. That's a really long answer to your question, but that's that's being shrewd and it's being sensitive, being compassionate, but it's also being truthful. There isn't anything else controversial you want to bring up in that area. So. Let's look at some of the. Let's look at some. Of the, what, what are some of those? We part of? Let's start with the, the 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 motives that are not honoring, not honorable. What what are some of the things you see there? Hint. There are two of them in verse fifteen. Envy. Huh? Envy. All right. One is out of envy. What's another motive? The next word, separated by and, rivalry, strife, or rivalry. Okay. How about? Let's continue with those. How about in um, in uh, verse seventeen? Uh, you see a whole bunch of them there. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Same verse, another one. In to Paul. That... <laughs> not sincere, is that what you're? All right, good. Um, let, let's take not sincere, or out of not not having pure motives, and then uh, Ty, you said let's just make it to hurt Paul. Mm-hmm. And that they didn't quite say it that way, cause him distress, but in effect, to hurt Paul. Okay, anything else? In verse 18, it's done out of pretense, pretense, is the way the New American Standard translates it. What's another word for pretense? That's not a word you're familiar with, pretense? Yeah. Malice? Yeah, malice. That's another way to, uh, to uh, Think about that. Let's look at the group two now. They've got honorable motives. Uh, that's not hard to figure that out. If you look at verse, uh, let's see. Well, we would start at the end of verse, verse 15. They're doing it out of goodwill. The next verse, they're doing it out of love. Lastly, they're doing it out of truth. And the third one is a little harder to discern, but it, it tells us they're in, uh, where is that? Um, they have an understanding, verse 16, that they have a proper understanding of Paul's role. That he is there defending the gospel. So you have these two groups contrasted. Group number one, they're not honorable. Motive. No. They're not honorable in their motives. These are honorable in their motives. Now, you honestly can see where I'm going with this. These can be motives. These can be explanations of why we do some of the things we do. Our goal is that these are the motives for which we do what we do. But Paul saying, the message is the same. And that the message is getting out is a good thing. God will deal with the motives. God is honoring and blessing the message that's getting out. And it's the accurate message. God will deal with the motives On both sides. I think one of the and you know in my own life that's certainly true one one of the and there are so many ways to think about this but one of the aspects of our growing independence on Christ is motives that's where God God works on that and i always frame it why do you do what you do why do you do what you do that's a motive question because how you answer it, nobody else knows the answer but you and God. Nobody else knows that. And what the Lord is saying to us through Paul here is, yes, the message is getting out. Praise be to God. That's what Paul's saying. God will deal with these things. But as we look at this and apply this, we say, it is better for me to be motivated by these Characteristics, because this is honorable to the Lord. And if I am this, you know, a motivation of selfish ambition, even if the right message is getting out, but in any area, selfish ambition, self-aggrandizement, self-elevation, it's not a positive. Over time, that will do us in. It it seems so counterproductive for the faith. The word for God mm-hmm. when you hear about some TV events mm-hmm. you know, the bakers mm-hmm. you know, on TV years and, ago, yeah, you yeah, know, or somebody taking, you know, just bringing it for the money, yes, and there are, yes. all over, yeah, the media. yeah, so you know, it just seems so <clears throat> counterproductive that mm. that would not hurt the faith for those kind of people, exactly, to be professing it and have those people make judgments about. Christianity based upon the character of those people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. God, if the message is the right message, God will honor that and people will respond. But God will also deal with the motives. And sometimes um, God deals with it by just letting the natural consequences of your evil motives work themselves out. God can take care of himself. He can, and sometimes he he allows. Um, and actually, I really think it's just the natural consequences of choices people make to work themselves out. And he'll bring whole ministries down because there's a moral failure at the top. And that's exactly what happened to the kingdom of Israel in the north in seven twenty two BC, and the kingdom of the south, Judah, in five eighty six BC. Both kingdoms totally collapsed because of the lack of God-honoring spiritual leadership that were supposed to teach the people the things of God, and they didn't do it. And God brought it down. I mean, God can take care of himself. God's program is not dependent on me. He will accomplish his purposes. But if he wants me, to, and he does, to be a part of what he's doing, then he's always reminding me why are you doing what you're doing? Are you honoring me even in your motives? And you are absolutely correct. If you do not keep your motives in check, they can get the best of you. That's the origin of pride and arrogance. And ultimately, ultimately, ultimately the, the, the point of all this is, with extreme pride and selfish ambition, you can get to the point where you believe I alone am the exception. This is not going to affect me, despite every chapter in the Bible saying to us that, you know, honor God, not yourself, but it's, uh, it's, it's true. So let's, let's, let's talk a little more about this, but I'm trying to, I, I want you to see, first of all, this incredible confidence and trust and faith of this man, Paul, and this, this, this incredible perspective he had of the eternal dimension of things. And it didn't matter what happened. He always looked at it through that grid. But also, this, this little passage that we've just finished can teach us a lot about this issue of motives and attitudes. And so I just I'm, I'm hoping that God can use this for you just to help you to think about that area. Any final questions or comments before we leave this? Yeah, time. I wish I could tell you there's a silver bullet that I found a couple years ago, and it's always worked. (laughs) I'm not sure there is one. There certainly isn't one from my life. But honestly, um, the most effective thing, and and my wife has taught me as much about this as anyone in my life, is um, I have meditated upon and, and really thought through what Paul means by pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That if I am in, and I I hope you understand what I think Paul means by that and what I'm going to be saying here in a minute, I try to be in a constant dialogue with God in my life. There's a book on that too, isn't there? Yeah, there, there are. Yeah, there are a couple. But that that, that that dynamic of prayer where I'm, I mean I'm talking to the Lord about all things. Not, I mean I'm not just I'm not verbalizing like, but I mean it's in my mind, I'm saying I mean I'm thinking, Lord, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you for allowing that to happen. Thank you for bringing that person. Thank you for taking care. Thank you for that question from my student. I, that's what I'm trying to, and my wife has really taught me that because since she's been sick over the last eight, nine years, that's something that she switched her entire life in ministry from one of being very, very active to being a lot more focused on prayer because she, she just cannot um, do a lot of things she used to do. And that, tie is one of the things that has helped me to keep my check on motives. And it's just, I'm, I, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm going to class now. I'm representing you. I want to do the best for you students. I want, to do, I want to do that which is honoring to you. I want them to understand what you want them to understand today. And then a student asked me a question. Thank you, Lord, give me the right answer, but thank you for that student. That's a good question. That kind of thing so that I'm, I'm constantly, as I talk with him, it becomes a source of on ongoing self-check. That's, to me, and this is a personal statement, uh, to me, that is the only thing that's been effective in my life. There's nothing else I've tried to do that has worked particularly in a, in a consistent way but what Peggy that's how Peggy has really learned to live her life these last eight years and that has helped me I mean I, I'm not the, the very slow kind of passive lifestyle she lives now out of necessity so prayer has become so important to her but at the same time that that's taught me an immense lesson and that little phrase pray without ceasing that's a constant check because that's, that's the lifestyle I'm trying to live and so that, uh, that's helped me a lot. But I don't, and I still struggle with it. I, I really do. I still struggle with it. All right. Let's look where we've got about 10, 12 minutes here. Let's look at this next section, which starts in verse uh, 19. And that really, it's a continuation. But we see here a level... First of all, of confidence in the Apostle Paul's perspective on things, and another demonstration of his amazing faith, but also he reveals to us one of the most significant tensions for a person who walks with God. Let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 19. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance. What's the this? That demonstrative pronoun this. It's referring back to everything he's been saying about his imprisonment. This shall turn out for my deliverance through or because of your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? Possibly, but I don't think that's the main point. The key is deliverance, isn't it? The answer to that is supposed to be yes. Okay. (laughs) I'm trying to get you to play the role now of a biblical scholar, of somebody studying the scripture to teach a Sunday school lesson to fifth graders, or a pastor... Preparing a message for a big congregation or for an awana worker trying to get across to a bunch of little kids a key verse. So you come across this word deliverance. What does he mean by that? I'm just going to put D for deliverance. Deliverance from prison. or deliverance from sin and judgment or deliverance in terms of going to heaven. In other words, he's going to die and he'll go to heaven. My deliverance shall turn out for my deliverance through or because of your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I should not be put to shame in anything but with all boldness, Christ even shall now, as always, be exalted in or through my body, whether by life or death. So you see Paul struggling now. He's now shifted from the very positive way in which he can see God using his imprisonment for his greater glory because the message is getting out regardless of the motives. People in the Praetorian Guard, the household of Herod, I've all heard the gospel and responded. And now what becomes very personal here. Very, very personal. I know God's going to rescue me. I know God's going to deliver me. In all likelihood, he is not talking about this because that happens the moment you put your faith in Christ because that's how this word is used in the New Testament, one of these three ways deliverance out of a circumstance, deliverance where you go to heaven, or deliverance from sin and judgment that's taken care of at the cross and Paul's appropriated that by faith so it's one of these two and you know what? we're not sure we're not sure which one he's talking about here, as a matter of fact I'm not sure he's sure but he's saying this, I know this, God's gonna deliver me. And he's gonna deliver me for two reasons. One, because you guys at Philippi have been praying for me. And two, the Holy Spirit of God indwells me. And you notice how he puts it, the spirit of Jesus Christ. Did you see that? That's very unusual. Not the only time it appears in the Testament, it's very unusual which gets us back to the Gospel of John, which we studied a couple of years ago. That when Jesus went back to the Father, whom did he send? He sent the Spirit to indwell us. So he's he's just characterizing it in a unique way, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is sure me he's going to take care of me. And you've been praying to that end. So I'm either going to be delivered from prison and I'll be released, or I'm going to be delivered and I'm going to go to heaven. As it says in Second Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Would you break those into life and death? Second. Would you break those then into life and death when you're asking to be delivered from prison would be life that he's, the way I'm seeing his physical body is from prison and if God chooses that he die, that will be heaven. That's right. That's right. And we, we start to see... The tension Paul is feeling here as he contemplates what's going to happen. Now, we're we're getting close to being done, but let's look at verse 20. We're going to come back. I want to say some things about verse 20, but I want you to see you really got, we still start to get the sense here of the tension Paul is feeling here. Verse 21. End, End of verse 20. My prayer is that I'll be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Ah, life or death. For to me, to live is Christ. That's his life. The pulsating center of the Apostle Paul's life is Jesus Christ. And to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean faithful labor for me. I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, this is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. The tension Paul feels to live with Jesus but to die is gain. That's a great perspective of life. To live is all about Jesus, Christ. But to die is gain. Paul says, "If I if I'm given the option to choose, I don't know which one I'll I will mean, choose. I love serving you. I love ministering to you. Faithful labor to me. I love that, but I also know that the part I'll be with Jesus. Well, no, that's." Listen, the reason I think this is important, and and we're we're unfortunately getting out of time today, but let's, let's lay this on the table. The reason I think this is important is it gives us a perspective about the tension that we begin to feel the longer we walk with the Lord. To live is Jesus. He's the vital center of my life. But to die is gain. My father is 90 years old. My father is not very well. He's, he's, just, he's 90, and a lot of things that just are you know, not working very well anymore, and it's, it's hard for Dad. And he's, he's, he says, I just want to go home. That's how he puts it. But, God still must have something more for me to do. See the tension? That's the tension of life. And I think it becomes even more significant as a tension, I mean. The older we get and the more the things that are about physical life start to shut down and not work very well. And the things, I mean, for my dad, all, every one of his close friends has died. All his golfing buddies, they've all gone to be with the Lord. I mean, it's just, you know, he just, I just, and he doesn't feel well most of his days. There's the tension. I really want to go home. But the Lord must still have something more for me to do. See the tension? To live as Christ, die as gain. That's the tension that we feel as Christians. And you get the little sense that Paul is saying, oh, to die and go to be with Jesus. But you know, have to be really careful that that's not a selfish motive. Because in a way, that's what I really would choose to do right now, Paul's saying. But if I stay, it'll be a more faithful service for you. And in verse 25, next week, we'll get, he's going to resolve that tension. We'll see that next week. Talk to me a minute. we got about another minute left. Talk to me. Do you see that? Do you understand what that tension means? Do you understand that? Do you understand what he's saying there? I'm not asking you, have you experienced it? That's not the point. But that tension... The tension of the believer, to live, it's all about Jesus. But to die is to go to be with Jesus. That's two pretty positive perspectives about life. That's an eternal perspective about things. To live is Jesus. That's the dynamic, vital, pulsating center of life for the believer. But to die is gain because then they go to be with him. I mean, that's, that's such a positive perspective about life. For the believer. It really is. Life is good. The circumstances may be rotten because of the physical condition we're in or whatever the circumstances are, but to live is Christ. To die is gain. That's a great perspective about things. Because both of them, Jesus is at the center. Do you want to respond to that or you just need to meditate on that a little bit? Mm. An unbeliever for comfort versus a believer offering this mm. makes sense. There is a whole different level of hope mm. within that. That's good. Absolutely correct. To use a passage like this to a person that doesn't know Christ, they think you're nuts. I mean, I know that can be a very rash way to respond. But it's hard to understand something like this if you haven't put your faith in Christ and don't have that perspective of things. Because the typical unbeliever, the person who doesn't know Christ, they're living for the moment. They're living for the next high of life, whatever that might be. And that's uh, not Paul's perspective. He worked hard. He had a strategic plan. He was focused. But his trust was totally on Christ. And if it stops tomorrow, I go to be with Christ. And that's a good thing. Well, John, guys, we got to stop. Time is up. But uh, this, this is a great... <clears throat> This is really a great little gem of a book, so we're just going to take our time through it. All right, we've we've got to stop here. Father, we're grateful for this day uh, that you've created for us. Thank you for the rain. Uh, Thank you for sharing it with us. We're very grateful for your goodness to us. We truly are. Thank you, too, for this uh, really quite marvelous passage of Scripture that uh, we have looked at today. Thank you for these men Help us in all of our lives, each one of us, in our walk with you to encourage and help one another to think about this matter of motives. This is something that Paul is addressing here from a very different vantage point, but it's important for us to think about that. Certainly for Paul, it was uh, for him, the message was getting out. That's what you were honoring. And for all of us, I think it's an important aspect of our growth to be asking, why do we do what we do? But at the same time, the grace of God that is available to us, and we see that in Paul's life too, as he struggles with living his life where you are the center. To live as Christ, he says, but to die is gain. And that's a marvelous perspective on life. I pray too, Lord, for your goodness and your grace in each one of our lives, especially in Fred and his daughter who's having surgery. I I would imagine it's major surgery, although I don't know that for sure. So. Be gracious to her uh, with the surgeons and the um, anesthesiologists and the nurses and everybody that's ministering to her medically. Uh, give them wisdom and the specific guidance, discernment, and may all that they want to accomplish through this be accomplished. So we commit that to you. We pray for Daryl recovering now. is in major therapy for this second knee replacement surgery. Trust that he'll be restored to full health quickly. And uh, we know that... This is something he's struggled with for quite a few years. and Thank you that we live in a time when surgery like that can really resolve some of those problems with knee and hip as we get older. We also think of Chris and losing his pet. I don't know the details of that, but a pet can also be as, as precious and special as a child in life. It can be a good gift from you. So this must be a very significant loss for him to comfort him even in this situation. Now that we go into the rest of our Wednesday and all that these men do in their jobs, their work, their responsibilities in their home, as well as any other areas that they have in their churches or even in this community. God, help each one of them as you help me as well to represent you well. We are your ambassadors, and we want to do that to the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. See you next week.